A big thank you to the Talk Python team who sponsor this episode of the podcast. If you want to get better at Python, now is an excellent time to take an online course. Whether you are just learning Python to delve into great topics like artificial intelligence, or you need to go deep into things like APIs and async, my friends at Talk Python Training have a top-notch course for you. Visit talkpython.fm/mind to find your next level and get a 10% discount. Also, a big thank you to all my patrons who support the Engineered Mind podcast. Hi and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast. In this podcast, we cover topics such as engineering, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and other interesting topics to educate, inspire, and engineer people's minds all around the world. I'm your host Joseph, and for this episode of the podcast, I am very honored to have Andrew Barto on my show. Andrew is a former computer scientist and professor emeritus, and known for his research on learning in machines and animals. He worked on developing learning algorithms that are useful for engineering applications, but that also make contact with learning as studied by psychologists and neuroscientists. When it comes to reinforcement learning, short RL, it has been immensely gratifying for Andrew to participate in establishing new links between RL and methods from the theory of stochastical optimal control. Especially exciting are the connections between temporal difference, short TD algorithms, and the brain's dopamine system. Plenty of people know him as one of the authors of the great book Reinforcement Learning and Introduction, which he wrote with his colleague Richard Sutton. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my podcast with the one and only Andrew Barto. Andy, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on my podcast. Welcome, first of all. And what we want to start with is, of course, your, your early days, how you started and got into RL. So you know yourself the best, so maybe... Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Um, and, uh, well, I can begin. Um, I, my, my dad was a mechanical engineer. My mother was an artist, later became a, a, a nurse, and, and I've always been interested in uh, engineering and artistic kinds of things. And I ended up going to the University of Michigan to study naval architecture which uh, I thought was a nice co combination of uh, engineering and, and architecture. Uh, I, I did that for a year and decided, well, it wasn't really uh, what I wanted to do. And I dropped out. I went into mathematics and got an undergraduate degree in math. And at some point along the way, I don't remember when, I got interested in Uh, I think I read um, or heard about McCulloch and Pitt's idea of uh, artificial neurons uh, being related to logic circuits in computers. And so I, for graduate school, I applied to uh, uh, the University of Michigan again, where I, where I lived uh, in computer science. And so I entered the graduate program and wound up um, studying, um, well, lots of things. It was a very interesting period. It was a kind of unique uh, graduate program um, there. And I uh, ended up in, in a lab called the Logic of Computers Group, which was uh, directed by three professors, one of whom was John Holland, the originator of genetic algorithms, 
And another was Arthur Burks, who is an electrical engineer and a philosopher, very distinguished professor who actually um, completed von Neumann's book on self-reproducing automata. Uh, and Bernie Ziegler uh, was studying uh, modeling and simulation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the three of them had this NSF-funded group. Uh, I became a research assistant in it. And so the, the whole atmosphere was really focused on um, genetic algorithms on, on the one hand and uh, cellular automata, which is what von Neumann's self-reproducing uh, system uh, was fo formulated as a cellular automata, and then modeling and simulation. And I wound up doing my thesis. Um, we were really working with Z Bernie Ziegler. Uh, we were modeling the modeling process in terms of systems theory. Mm -hmm. And so my, my thesis was, was uh, playing out some of these ideas um, in the realm of cellular automata. So I was sort of in that mix of things. Um, I wasn't a typical computer science uh, student. Uh, I've only taken two courses in programming in my entire life. And uh, although I taught Fortran for many years as, as a graduate student, I've, not, I've never been a hacker. So I've, I skipped that stage for some reason and uh, uh, was really interested in these biological connections and the idea of cellular automata was very appealing because with very little specification, uh, you can generate enormously complex behavior and that kind of, uh, uh, that, that sense of um, the discrepancy between what needs to be specified and what the consequences are was something that uh, appealed to me. I was heavily influenced by John Holland um, and genetic algorithms, but I never uh, really bought the algorithm in, in, in the sense of, uh, I felt that there were uh, a lot of other stochastic algorithms, uh, optimization algorithms that could compete uh, with, with genetic algorithms, but I was influenced by the idea. And, and so combining that with an interest in neural networks led to some of our earliest uh, reinforcement learning systems. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I well, let me let me back up a little bit because then I I got my PhD and I went to uh, I took an assistant professorship at the State University of New York in Binghamton, which is now called Binghamton University, and it was a very interesting program. Uh, focused on general systems theory. And I was there for just two years. Um, I, I, I didn't really uh, buy the general systems theory perspective that was, uh, that was prominent there. And uh, I heard of a postdoc at the University of Massachusetts on a project studying adaptive neural networks. And at the, this was 19... 76 or 1977 and so no one was really studying neural networks uh, but i was interested in that and i drove up and talked to uh bill kilmer um the and uh i was hired as a postdoc uh, i took a leave from my assistant professorship 
and uh, went to Amherst uh, and worked on, on this, this interesting project. Um, I eventually resigned my assistant professorship uh, to continue the postdoc, which is something I don't recommend students doing these days. Uh, but it turned out to be a, a good move. I eventually became a faculty member at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Um, and, and stayed there until I retired just a few years ago. Um, so, but reinforcement learning, let's, let's uh, I guess, um, uh, when I went to Amherst, uh, the project uh, was uh, that I was a postdoc on was funded by the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. And it was a project that was instigated by Harry Clough, who was a physiologist who worked for the Air Force and had the idea that neurons uh, worked to achieve, to increase something and to decrease something else. He called it the theory of the hedonistic neuron. And the project, uh, whose principal investigators were Bill Kilmer, uh, Michael Arbib, and uh, Nico Spinelli, uh, they were professors at, at uh, UMass and uh, had gotten this Air Force contract to see if Clough's ideas made any sense, see if they were worth studying and pursuing. And uh, I became a postdoc uh, on that project. And not long after that, um, Rich Sutton, who, was a, uh, who had recently graduated from Stanford, uh, joined the project as a, uh, as a research assistant. And so uh, Rich and I really began working together, I guess, 1977 is basically uh, when this began. And our uh, project was to see if Harry Clough's idea of the hedonistic neuron was something interesting and whether it was worth studying. So that, that's what we began doing. And uh, we... Uh, I mean, the surprising thing to us was that uh, the idea of learning by trial and error, which is what Clough said neurons might be doing, uh, was not really well studied. Um, it's not supervised learning. In fact, to this day, I think many people uh, don't really understand the distinction between reinforcement learning and supervised learning. And, uh, most of the work that was being done, not everything, but most of the work was, was supervised. And uh, reinforcement learning uses a less informative teaching signal, a reward or punishment signal, rather than a specification of a, 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 of a desired response, which, mm -hmm. which, is, which is what uh, supervised learning systems do. So we were surprised, uh, and, and we had the leisure at that time, it was a three-year grant or, pro, or uh, contract, and we uh, were we were able to pursue um, a lot of ideas and to really study the history to see if these ideas had been worked out and were they worth anything? Were, had they been shown to be useless and so on? And so it was a very uh, you know it was a very interesting period, um, and, and we found that. Uh, uh, you know, some, some work had been done, but uh, it hadn't really, we felt it hadn't really been appreciated. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was really, uh, 
you know, became what is now reinforcement learning. Um, we were not the first that goes way, way back uh, uh, to, to many earlier people, specifically in psychology. The idea of uh, Thorndike's um, oh, the, puzzle, the puzzle fact. box, right? Thorndike's puzzle book. The puzzle box and, uh, you know, the cat and the puzzle box is trying out things uh, and uh, eventually stumbling on something that uh, lets it escape from the box. And, uh, and they, he put it back in the box and that would, it would get out in less time. And eventually it would immediately let, let, its, uh, let itself out of the box. And, and he did this with fish not not the same box of course but he did it with uh, other animals and this is this became called trial and error learning and uh it's different than supervised learning because no outside agency was telling the, the cat or the other animals what they should do they had to discover it for themselves and so uh this is what cloth postulated that neurons do um as they're in, you know, as they're operating in a nervous system. Uh, so we, we concluded that um, it was an interesting idea, uh, hadn't really been exploited. Uh, in fact, it had been rejected uh, by AI uh, uh, researchers as being uh, too weak. Uh, and in psychology, it was associated with behaviorism, which had been uh, rejected to a large extent in favor of cognitive psychology. And we felt that, um, uh, you know, there were many valid criticisms of, of behaviorism, but in some sense it was like throwing out a simple principle uh, w without really uh, sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, you know, this very simple principle uh, very, very well supported empirically, uh, but had been uh, relatively neglected in certainly in AI. Although some early AI, particularly Marvin Minsky, uh, worked with uh, his thesis was uh, was a reinforcement learning thesis, or at least part of it. So, so um, oh, those were exciting times, and I became a faculty member. Rich was my first student. And I have to say that the whole development of this um, uh, owes a tremendous amount to students that I've had. I've had fantastic students. Rich was the first, but followed by, by many others who, you know, just wonderful, creative, uh, uh, creative people who've gone on, uh, in most cases, to really uh, do some, some great things. So. Um, you know, I, I really owe so much to, uh, to, to, my, to my wonderful students. Um, but, um, and one of the first things we did uh, in this project was build what we, call, what we call an associative search network, which was really combining an associative memory idea, which was prominent in the literature at that time, um, uh, you know, correlation matrix memories and so on, but they were supervised. And we, we created one really by combining sort of Holland's ideas of search with the associative memory. And we came up with the associative search network, which uh, stored memories, but no 
system told it what memories it should store. It had to discover them to see what produced the most reward. And so that was sort of an early, an early uh, few papers that we wrote and, uh, and then, um, you know, continued from there. But so that's probably well enough uh, of my early, um, I, 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 I sometimes think I should have been an architect um, rather than a computer scientist. I'm an atypical computer scientist because I'm really not interested in computers. Um, I use them and have always relied on tech support People ask me questions about computers, and I say, "Ask my son. I have no idea." Um, you know, so so uh, I, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm an atypical uh, computer scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, so so yeah. So RL. Um, Could you maybe define uh, Andy? Uh, maybe in simple terms, what is RL? How would you define it? You did it earlier on in a little bit. Uh in a crisper yeah, way, but maybe so, if you want, you can go longer. Well, I, I to me, the principle is, is uh, at root, it's search. Just trial and error is search. But in addition to search, it's memory. Mm -hmm. So it's search plus memory. And so the results of search are stored so that the search can eventually the search can be eliminated because the consequences of search are stored in memory so that you don't have to continue the search. And, and so uh, uh, it's, it's not just finding a good solution, it's saving it. Mm -hmm. So, so um, uh, I think those are the main principles. Now, You know, I think a lot of people then associate uh, reinforcement learning with uh, temporal difference algorithms for doing prediction. So this was really Rich's thesis, Rich Sutton's thesis, adding a predictive element to this. Um, and uh, uh, that greatly increases the power of these systems when there's a delay between an action and the consequences. Um, But RL to me is more basic than that. It's just, it's a trial and error search plus memory. Um, and uh, uh, prediction augments the, the power of, of, of that. So, so that's, I, I recently wrote a paper that appeared in AI magazine uh, that uh, uh, talks about uh, this this idea of search and memory. It's actually memoized search, if the term memoization uh, means something. Mm -hmm. So instead of computing each time, you can store the result and avoid the more complex computation process if you have the same problem to, to address again. And so memoized, it's not memorized, it's memoized. It's a term created by uh, Robin Popplestone, who I was fortunate enough to be a colleague with him at UMass for several years before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he and uh, Donald Mickey uh, created the idea of memoization. And uh, I think of RL at the base is memoized 
search. Um, so I don't know. It's a pretty abstract uh, definition, but, but it's uh, very it's very understandable, Andy. Um, okay, go, good. Go, going back to to languages, you mentioned earlier on that you taught people in Fortran. What language? Yes. Should, what language should you use to um, implement your first algorithms? Was it also Fortran or C? Oh, uh, gee, gosh, that was so long. No, C, I don't even think existed then. I'm not sure when C first appeared. Um, A bit later than, than the 70s, I, I guess. So so we did some work using APL. Okay. Which I, I don't know if anyone, it's an interpreted <laughs> language with a, a strange, you know, you need a different keyboard and so on, but it's very fast to, to implement things. Uh, but then I think, you know, my students were using C eventually and uh, Lisp in some cases. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and, and I wrote programs in, in uh, C uh, when, when I was program. I haven't written a program in many, many years, however. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and now a lot of people are using Python mm -hmm. um, and, uh, Uh, yeah, so APL, very strange language. Uh, people prided themselves on writing the most unintelligible uh, code possible uh, in APL. And, uh, uh, of course, that's not uh, the preferred approach these days. Yeah. Um, would you say that um, there is, on one side, there's this extrinsic motivation, right, of in terms of reward, and there's also this intrinsic motivation where, where you are intrinsically motivated to do something. Uh, what would you say in RL in these typical algorithms that we that we use uh, th that you know about? Are they extrinsically motivated because there's this common thing called reward, or is there also a component for intrinsic motivation? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I've been very interested in, in intrinsic motivation, and and uh, uh, I I think. I mean, the way, way to think about it is uh, an RL system has this reward signal. And, you know, in most cases, you think of it as coming from the external environment of the robot or whatever system is, is the learning system. Uh, but, you know, if you look at us, you look at animals, um, the reward signal in our brain comes from our brain. It's, it's generated uh, inside the organism. Um, it can be uh, triggered and, and influenced by external inputs, but uh, there's no sensation that we have for reward. It's something that uh, parts of our brain that evolved over many, many uh, uh, long epochs, uh, our brain generates these reward signals. And, And, and uh, so, so all reward to me is generated internal, internally mm -hmm. to, uh, to the robot or whatever machine you're inserting this uh, reinforcement learning system in. Um, and the difference between intrinsic, intrinsic and extrinsic uh, reward uh, then is not if it's generated inside or outside the organism, but uh, whether it's uh, targeted to a specific uh, task or whether it is a more general purpose reward that 
facilitates uh, learning skills and knowledge that can be used for many, many different tasks. Um, so, so I think a good analogy is, is the distinction between basic research and programmatic research. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, the classic example is the, the work to develop the atomic bomb. That was programmatic. It was all directed to this very explicit goal. Uh, whereas basic research is uh, really developing knowledge that may or may not be useful. Um, and, 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 but often is useful. So, so um, uh, I, I think AI systems need to have uh, uh, a, a basis for, for learning generally useful knowledge and skills. And I think intrinsic or mechanisms like what we call intrinsic reward and intrinsic motivation in, in, in humans, I think something analogous to that can be uh, useful for uh, uh, AI systems to, to uh, move away from being so specific, targeted to uh, specific problems, but have more general, uh, uh, you know, toward general AI rather than specific AI. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, and, and, you know, I think looking at my career, I've been uh, largely intrinsically motivated. There are just certain things that interest me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think even RL in the early days, you know, it wasn't clear it was going to be useful, but it was interesting. And so, um, you know, my, my, my work was motivated by uh, this, this interest rather than to create a, a, a particular system to solve a particular problem. I think it's a shortcoming and to some extent of, of how um, my work has been and many other people now have really taken it to to actually do very interesting uh, surprising like AlphaGo the Go playing programs that DeepMind has produced um, but uh, I think my work is driven largely by being intrinsically interested in, in this confluence of ideas mm -hmm. search memory computation um, and and uh, so so uh, intrinsic mode. I think it's I think it's a misunderstood. I, it's it's a very popular idea now in in uh, among reinforcement learning people. And I think in many cases they really misunderstand it and use it as a general term for anything that is not the most simple uh, kind kind of reward structure. And it's it's I've written papers that try to put it in context. Uh, and, and related to, to uh, psychology. Psychologists have studied this uh, for, for quite some time. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't really get, get uh, the distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, it's a good question. Thank you very much. What I also wanted to talk about is how do you feel about this kind of resurgence, quote unquote, of reinforcement learning? How do you see that? You mentioned AlphaGo. Are you proud how, how far RL has come? And, or what do you think personally? 
Well, yes, I'm astounded, actually. You know, there, there, there have been surprising things uh, throughout. Uh, the first was Jerry Tesoro's uh, backgammon program, mm -hmm. Neurogat, or uh, uh, TD Gammon. Yeah. Uh, and that was very surprising. Um, and then the Go players from Deep Mind, uh, equally surprising. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's been very uh, gratifying to see that these ideas can be uh, powerful uh, in 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 particular problems. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know there's certainly uh, shortcomings of of these of of these systems that. Uh, you know, they're focused on problems, for example, where the reward signal is easily defined. In a game, it's a relatively transparent process to, to uh, design a reward signal uh, that uh, leads to better play. In many other problems, it's not clear at all what the reward signal should be. Uh, so, but still, uh, you know, I've, I've been, it really, uh, it really put RL on the map um, as being a, an important part of AI. And uh, it actually, I think, helped sell a lot of, <laughs> a lot of our books. Rich and I, uh, I wrote a book on, on RL and the, the sales uh, surged uh, with the advent of the deep mind results. So, so that's great. I can't complain about that. Uh, no, I think I think it's been very exciting. I, you know, I'm concerned that uh, you know there's hype about it. You know, not just RL, but deep neural networks. I mean, the 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 idea of combining that with RL uh, um, is a powerful thing, and, and uh, it's been. I I, I think uh, uh, it's not all of AI. I mean, many people talk as are right uh, about it as being, but I think it's it's just it's a it's a component uh, that uh, will will continue to be developed, uh, but augmented by by other kinds of uh, algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So no, I'm very it, you know it it uh, 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 it was an exciting. Uh, thing to see see the performance of uh, of these systems mm -hmm. so, I see. And, well, and you know that the, the tesoro's backgammon i forget the date of that but um uh, that was surprising because rl has always had the reputation of being very slow um and and it is slow so that's a deserved rep reputation um uh, but with a system with a game like backgammon the state space is so big that if you applied classical dynamic programming to it it would take thousands of years even on very fast computers and so in you know jerry sorrow's system learned i don't know how long you know weeks of of simulated play which seems slow but compared to what a classical uh, dynamic programming method would take it was very fast and so that was that was a revelation that that made it uh evident that that rl could could be a, a useful way of approximating optimal solutions to to very uh complex uh stochastic 
uh, optimization problems. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, uh, so, and then AlphaGo, you know, it, it, and, and, uh, uh, so there's AlphaGo and then there's AlphaGo zero. And then I think there's alpha zero mm -hmm. and these, these systems, um, take it further and have really demonstrated that combined with deep, uh, deep uh, neural networks plus massive uh, computational resources can, can do uh, surprising things. Um, so yeah, it's all very exciting. Mm -hmm. But you know, I have to say I, I retired some years ago and I'm glad to be retired because I, it's impossible uh, to keep up with, with everything. And, yeah, that's and a now problem. I really don't have to. My my students are out there pushing it and keeping up with it and and being key parts of the whole development. But uh, I um, sort of a lot of pressure was taken off of me <laughs> when I retired mm -hmm. uh, because I you know I, it's impossible even for young people it's impossible to keep up with the volume mm -hmm. of uh, of literature that, that's being generated. Absolutely. Much of it very interesting and exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I can speak for myself as a very, very beginner in RL. When you get started and then you see on Twitter, DeepMind published something new and you're like, okay, I just got started. It's a bit, and yeah. can be a bit frustrating. You talked about pressure. Yeah. How yeah. was it in the old days when you released papers? You didn't have this kind of pressure what people have nowadays, oh, right? That, yeah, oh, that's a very good point. Um, we, we, uh, We, we were funded by a three-year grant or contract, and uh, I was a postdoc. I wasn't teaching. Uh, Rich was a graduate student, and uh, uh, we, we, uh, we were able to go pretty deeply into things and, and would publish, I think our first papers came out uh, in three, three years. Mm. I think 81 were some of the first papers and we started in 77 and um, we didn't feel compelled to produce a, a paper or, or a conference paper uh, every year yeah. like, like, like students uh, and faculty today. Um, there, in fact, there were, there was not a venue for what we were doing anyway. <clears throat> so, so, uh, You know, things like the big uh, machine learning conferences re really didn't exist. Um, so, so, so um, it was, uh, you know, I think we published, we, we'd worked for three years and published a bunch of papers after that. And then another three years, another bunch of papers. Mm -hmm. a and uh, today, uh, uh, people can't do that. Uh, and I think it's really unfortunate. You know, there's a lot of pressure to publish seven, you know, small conference proceeding papers, and, and often they're very good and influential. But uh, there's a continuous pressure to to generate a, a volume of these things, and I, I think that's uh, I think that's really unfortunate that students are put in that position. I think in applying for jobs, they should request, you know, your top three papers or something like that, and not the number of them. Yeah, which is which is I think ought to be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Should be the should be the significance and the influence of the papers rather than the number. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, 
in the old days, we were, we were, uh, you know, in an enviable situation to be able to, uh, uh, you know, work for relatively long periods, uh, uh, without, um, publishing stuff. Mm -hmm. So the good old days, if someone would say good old days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, yeah, you, yeah. You talked about uh, Rich Sutton being your first student. What would you say your students back in the days when they said, hey, Andy, I want to get started in RL or in neural networks in general? Because there were these AI winters, right? There were two. And one of them was from 74 to, to the 80s, beginning of the 80s. What would you tell them if they come to you and say, hey, I want to go into neural networks slash RL? Would you motivate them or would you be like, okay, take it easy? Well, my students were always motivated. They were intrinsically motivated, mm. um, and, and uh, not all of them. I mean, there were a few that that uh, went on to do other things. But um, you know, the ideas were, I think, just interesting ideas. And students who had those in, that who, whose interests coincided with with those things uh, didn't need to to be uh, motivated. I, I would, I, I would. Uh, try to uh, influence students so that they connected with the literature and that they knew how it fit into the historical mm -hmm. context. And, uh, but my students, I was able to um, mostly allow them to work on their own ideas. And, and often, actually the process that I ended up with, I, uh, I uh, thought of as being analogous to simulated annealing. So a, a new student would have a kind of high temperature search among various ideas. And I'd say, write, you know, write a paragraph about it. Don't worry about the English or language or punctuation or anything, just a quick, and then I'll give you some feedback and we'll do this high temperature exploration. And then slowly we'll turn the temperature down <clears throat> as things, uh, you know, head towards something that looks substantial enough to turn into a dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and that, that, um, you know, it really means the, the students were working on their own ideas. I never had a project. Well, that's not quite true, but, um, you know, it was mostly uh, working with ideas and uh, encouraging students to, uh, Uh, generate ideas and, and and to turn them into substantial scholarly uh, pieces of work that that could lead to a degree and publications and and so uh, it was not as if I told students to write code for a specific component of a large system that we were building mm -hmm. um, they're really their own ideas so so I, I didn't have to motivate uh, a large number of students. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, fascinating. I think the yeah. subject is just so interesting that it is, that, it is. Yeah. That, that, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't need, uh, you know, the challenge was to direct work toward things that I thought were not frivolous or, uh, lacking in, um, rigorous support. Uh, And, uh, and in, in, you know, really succeeded in doing that for the most part. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you that the book from you and Rich, it's really a helpful 
I would say thousands and thousands of people. I have it myself and it's such a big help actually if you delve into the field. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. Uh, well, I thank you. I, I'm uh, honored to, to hear that. I, I'm glad it, uh, it, it has been helpful. And then there's a new edition now yeah. that's we should much say that. bigger. And uh, one of the things that I like about the new edition, there are many things, but uh, there's a chapter on neuroscience and psychology that uh, Rich and I intended for the first edition, but we never got to it. And so the second edition, which is much longer, unfortunately, but it has uh, connections to neuroscience and to psychology. That, and I think those are very important. I, I like the fabric of these connections uh, and how the, how they relate to each other, um, rather than uh, just uh, specifying the current state of the art. Yeah, 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 I completely agree on that. That's also why the podcast is about engineering, neuroscience, and AI, because as you said, it's okay, something interrelated. Yeah, um, yeah. Before we wrap things up, Andy, was there a point back in the days where you said, where you didn't make any progress, and you said at one point, okay? I want to give up, or did you always pursue your goal without having thinking well, about? Well, there were times where there, there were times when I was uh, uh, I was uh, unhappy mm -hmm. because we hadn't made uh, any progress for a while, or I felt that the ideas were uh, justifiably criticized by AI researchers as being too weak, uh, not able to. Uh, Uh, you know, outdated ideas from behaviorist theories, uh, too weak, not knowledge-based, and so on. And, you know, those are reasonable criticisms, but, uh, uh, you know, we made enough progress that, that uh, I thought we were uh, contributing. Uh, and, and, and then we would come up with something very interesting and continue so but there were periods when when i you know was was quite um uh depressed about uh what i was doing mm -hmm. but yeah. usually didn't last too long especially with students who are so good uh, you know coming up with great things um it it it, it was a pleasure to uh to work with them mm -hmm. so to to wrap things up andy is there anything you want to say to the audience maybe in terms of RL, AI, any motivating words from, from you? Oh, yes. Well, um, well so um, I, as I said, uh, I, I think it's important to relate what you're doing to previous work. And, and so I have strived to make connections uh, uh, rather than Uh, claiming that something we were doing was was completely new, and uh, I, I actually um, at the first uh, RL conference that was held at Princeton some years ago, I did a 10 minute introductory talk, and and, and I said, um, "Don't be afraid of rediscovering the the wheel, mm -hmm. uh, but if you do." Uh, call it a wheel mm -hmm. rather than something else, or at least a new and improved wheel rather than create a new name disconnected from, 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 from the history. And uh, uh, 
Uh, uh, uh, but that's that's my perspective. Not everyone feels that these connections are important. Rich Sutton, for example, does not. He likes to to uh, disconnect from the past, and and I'm the opposite. So I think we worked well together because of that uh, those those differences. But um, you know, I think that's how I think by connecting things to historical context, you actually build a. Uh, a field that that has some uh, not only computational power but historically lasting influence on on future work. So uh, I think I, I encourage students to uh, read um, even old old papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so That's I've been tip. criticized for citing papers that were more than ten years old, and I, I think. That's a ridiculous criticism, but um, some of those old papers are extremely uh, important, I think. So, mm-hmm. and in our book, we tried to talk about the history, to talk about the influences, and in some of these earlier, earlier papers that uh, were, we think were so important, like Arthur Samuel's Checkers Player, for example, which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, still a very worthwhile thing to read about. I think so. Um, awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I thank you for for this opportunity. I don't know if uh, if what I've said made, made sense. It but, made absolute um, sense. And I'm delighted to see uh, so many people interested in RL. Um, you know, one concern I have is you have to be careful in uh, you know putting RL systems out in the real world because often you don't know what they're going to do. And, and and so there's a lot of thinking needed to uh, ensure safety yeah. uh, of these systems. So so that's uh, important. Uh, it it, it uh, I, I guess it's one of the reasons I got interested in RL because the systems will come up with things that you never thought about. They'll they're really creative in a sense, mm-hmm. and, and that was appealing. But on the other hand, that can be a problem because uh, they may come up with something that, um, I mean, this is the basis of a lot of, of concern over uh, AI that, that has been uh, written about lately in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the uh, danger, danger of, of AI. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that's, that's an important issue, but it's also interesting that these systems are creative. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, I enjoyed uh, talking with you. And um, I... uh, um, What I wanted to say is, um, first of all, I want to thank you very much for taking the time, first of all, to to be on this show. And um, I think I speak for a lot of people if I say thank you so much, Andy, for, for, for writing the book, for contributing to the field. So it's such an interesting field and I'm just getting started. But um, if people want to get jump into it, the book is very good. And uh, I think it's excellent, oh, to be well, honest. Thank you. And it was a pleasure sharing your ideas, uh, hearing from your ideas on this podcast and what your vision on AI is, RL and so on. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show, to be honest. And well, thank uh, thank you again for, for inviting me. I, I'm glad to, to be able to do it. And uh, uh yeah, so uh, thank you. 
Thank you so much. If if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? My email address. Is, I mean, if you Google me, I think okay. it comes up with my homepage, mm -hmm. which lists publications and and has links to the book. Yep. Also, and so uh, uh, that would be the way. My email is on there. So uh, and I I try to answer uh, email in reasonably short periods of time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I noticed that. Thank you so much, Andy. Take care. Okay, my pleasure. Bye-bye.